0: Throw me the ball and watch what I do with it. You are now tuned into the Cherry Picking Podcast with your host, Andre Cherry.
1: Hi everyone, this is Andre Cherry. I'm your host of the Cherry Pickem podcast. Thank you so much for downloading another very special and exciting show, and I I can't wait to have my buddy Casey Kane on the mic with me today. But before we get started, I want to throw this PSA out there that the election is approximately 25 days away. So if you're looking to get registered to vote, you're running out of time, but you can still do so at vote.org. Go to that site to figure out what you need to do per your state guidelines. To get registered so that your vote is counted and that your voice is heard. So please check out vote.org to see what you need to do to get registered. And if you are registered and you have your mail-in ballot, make sure you fill that out and send that in right away. Do not waste time because time is running out. So that's my PSA for today. And now we'll hop into the show And it's an exciting show because my good friend Casey Callanan joined me on this episode today to discuss his latest book, How They Got Their Billions, Exploring the Business Stories of Pro Football's 32 Owners. Casey is a published author. If you didn't know, this dude's written like 12 books already. And so this recent book that he has out there explores how the NFL owners got their billions and we see what makes them successful. And, And in some cases, some of these owners might need some help maybe aren't as successful but casey breaks it all down in his latest book it's called how they got their billions i'll be sure to post out a link to where you can purchase this book it's a fun read if you're an nfl fan or if you have a business mind and want to learn what made other business minded folks so successful in their industry this is a great book. And Casey really did a great job in putting all the research together. And and we have a great conversation just talking through this book. And I hope you enjoy this conversation that we have. Hope you enjoy the show. Hope you buy that book. And I hope you all stay safe. So with that, we'll go ahead and start this show. My good friend Casey Kane will join me right now. Today, I have the honor and privilege to interview my good friend. You've heard him on the podcast series before. His name is Casey Callanan, and I have him on the podcast today because I want to talk about his exciting new book that just came out recently about the NFL owners, and it's called How They Got Their Billions, Exploring the Business Stories of Pro Football's 32 Owners. And so at this time, I want to say uh, welcome, Casey, to the show. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, it's good to be here. Andre, How's uh, your
0: college football viewing experience before we get into this?
1: College football, to be honest, it's been kind of crazy because the lead up to this season, there's a lot of speculation and a lot of doubt about whether a season would actually happen. And so we've seen a lot of moves within the conferences. The Big Ten and the MAC conference, to name a few, decided early on that they weren't going to play at all this season, which, in my opinion, I thought was a, a smart move amid a global pandemic. We've seen the ACC, the Big Twelve, and the SEC are in action currently, and then just maybe a few weeks ago, we've seen the Big, the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the MAC conferences, to name a few, have re- you know decided to re- to reverse their decision. And so it looks like we'll have college football within all of FBS uh, starting here fairly soon. Wow. So it'll be interesting to see if the season will actually be able to, they'll be able to complete a season, but. It's definitely felt different at times. Um, it's a good distraction if you want to get away from everything going on, but it, yeah. it certainly has been crazy. What What are your thoughts about that?
0: I've been watching it here and there. Obviously, I'm wearing a West Virginia shirt. I am a West Virginia fan. I went there for school, and I love their program. We had a nice win over Baylor this past weekend, which was nice, bouncing back from a pretty terrible loss at Oklahoma State. So I'm pretty – I'm liking where we're at, where Neil Brown's got us. Sometimes it's weird, you know, it's like a roller coaster with them. One week I'm like, this team's got it. And then I'm like, what are we doing? We're taking a few steps back. But, you know, I'm more – I am obviously a huge West Virginia fan, love the Big 12, but I know you're more of a college football fan. I have always been a pro football fan more. But don't get me wrong, I liked college a lot. Um, I was born in Rhode Island, so I'm like a New England guy, and that's pro football territory for sure. Um, The Patriots were so terrible when I was very, very little, but you had Boston College and you had the Patriots. So it it wasn't really that – college football wasn't really that huge back then. Again, NFL wasn't even that big. I mean, I know people that to this day my cousins – uh, husband, who's from I think Bridgewater, Mass. You know, it's kind of around Brockton. It's 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 pure New England Patriot territory. He actually to this day so traumatized by how bad the Patriots were throughout the '80s and into the '90s. He's still not a fan. So <laughs> that in New England, you see actually some people in New England who are like my uncle, who is in his 70s now. He's of an age where the Patriots didn't even exist when he was a little kid. He actually grew up watching New York Giants games. And to this day, he's a New York Giants fan. And I always found that funny. He's like, my favorite player growing up was Pat Summerall. He used to kick the field goals. I'm like, wow. Hilarious. (laughs) I would be like, the announcer? Yeah, Yeah. Pat Summerall was a kicker, and he was good back in the day. He was nailing them. Of course you and I probably remember most for his announcing with John Madden. I thought Summerall was the best. To this day I still think Summerall was the best announcer tied with a guy by the name of Dick Enberg who would go, "Oh my." Rest and a in big peace. Play would yeah, I Rest liked him peace, Dick Enberg. a lot too. So those are yeah, my pick. two favorites. But yeah, just uh, like I wasn't like a huge college fan when I was growing up, but then when we moved to Chicago Um, that's when I really became a huge college football fan. As a young first grader, we moved to the Chicago area. where That's actually where we met, you know, in the Chicago area. And that's when I realized that college football was a religion because you had Notre Dame, you had Michigan, huge fan base, all the Big Ten, and that's when really I started getting into – Saturdays being for college football. And that was a cool experience. But I always had like pro football in my blood. So um, I went on to journalism school and covered some of the West Virginia football. Uh, I did some um, high school sports writing after college and always had the interest in writing about uh, sports. And I think pro football was probably my favorite sport to cover aside from boxing I actually had some opportunities to cover boxing in Morgantown West Virginia at a, at a hotel they would cover uh they had fights there every once in a while and that was the peak of me like being happy and in my element was writing those boxing uh stories but but football was a close number two and You know, I went into business side of things. I got out of journalism and went into more marketing and communications. And that's when I got my MBA and started really taking on an interest in the business side of pro football, all sports, really. And that's when I said, you know what? I love reading about how all the owners, like, came into owning the franchise, whether it be, like, a Jerry Jones who was in oil exploration, um, whether it's a guy like Mark Cuban in the, you know, Dallas Mavericks owner who – who sold uh, a website called broadcast.com to you. I believe he sold it to Yahoo way back in the day. And that's how he actually made his billions. And, you know, he's obviously still a huge active business investor to this day. And so I was always interested in those stories. And I was like, you know, pro football is like America's passion. It's, it's like, it's definitely our pastime over baseball by now. I mean, that's obvious. So I went into just exploring how all 32 teams, ownerships, groups, came into place and there was a ton of interesting stories and um did a a ton of research there's a lot of uh research notes in here at the end you can see all the sources that i had to use and yeah i think it came together nicely and we got you know this book i put together 32 stories of how all the ownership groups came to be and that's the that's the you know the long version of how it how it started
1: yeah, and, and Casey, when you had mentioned earlier that, you know, you really are a pro football type of guy, um, it really came through in your book. The book is, it's about the 32 owners or 32 teams, and it um, it's, I would say it's a pretty, pretty good-sized book. I mean, I have the e-copy of it, and I'm starting to read it, yeah. but it's not a daunting read. And what I mean by that is that it, it flows very well. It's a very nice read. You can read it you know, on a nice Sunday morning before kickoff to the games, or, you know, once we get out of COVID, you know, you can, you know, take it on a beach. Like you could, you could really take this and pick it up at your leisure or so it seems. I mean, it was a really interesting, smooth, easy read. And so nice. I just wanted to say that right off from, from the top there. Nice.
0: Did you have any questions about any of the owners? I know you maybe wanted to talk some, uh, some specifics on some of these ownership groups.
1: Oh yeah, so I've got I've got a few questions that I I do want to ask you. And I think you've already kind Ooh. of tapped into what the inspiration was for the book, um yeah. just hearing about your background and your upbringing, but can you tell me in a little bit more detail and tell the audience what the research process involved? Like how how intensive was that process? Because I know it you were fairly busy doing this. Uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would say it in the beginning, it's all information that already existed. It's not like I did any original reporting. I didn't go to Jerry Jones's mansion in suburban Dallas and interview him. Unfortunately, I would have loved to have done that, but um, it's all information that already existed and had been written. Um, Dallas magazine was huge for learning about Jerry Jones. There was profiles in depth that they did about him and his family And so it was just going through the Internet and combing all these reliable primary sources for information on these guys. Like uh, Almost every story, there was some publication somewhere along the line that had did an in-depth report on the individual. Um, One of the more mysterious owners is um, the Vegas Raiders owner, Mark Davis, son of the legendary Al Davis – and he there was one espn.com article written about him maybe 5 6 years ago and he's he doesn't do a lot of media engagement a lot of these guys don't um but i i just he's such an interesting character on paper he's got this i call it the lloyd christmas haircut you know from dumb and dumber it's kind of <laughs> like you know it's very low frills he's a low frills guy he wears you know, like probably jeans you would get at target and buy some
1: new balances.
0: Yeah. He's just an unassuming guy and I would love to know more about him, but he's very private, very hard to find out information on him. Um, he there was. So in that ESPN article that was written a while back and I write about it in this book, they said he had some interesting quirks. Like he, would uh travel the country in like an old like minivan and had had, like a vcr player in it still this was like 2014 so it wasn't that crazy but yeah so i'd love to know more about mark davis he uh he doesn't have a lot of uh, public information but i did write a lot about his dad al davis who has a ton of uh books that have been written about him and information about him. He's he's the uh he is Mr. Raider. He's the founder. He's the uh he's the guy. He actually he's not the founder. He he was uh one of the early people involved in the Raiders when they, you know, entered the AFL. He actually is not the founder. I shouldn't say that. But um, you know, he is Mr. Raider. The the Raiders are Al Davis and I don't know if you've seen their games yet at their new stadium uh right off the strip there in Vegas, but they have this huge torch that burns 24-7, I believe, as an honor to Al Davis. Wow, Wow. Just win, baby. That's his motto. So uh, I don't know more about um, guys like that. But, yeah, the process was basically just reading about these in-depth profiles that have already been written about these people.
1: Yeah, I would say uh, just real quick about the Raiders – I I was watching the hard knocks. I think it was from last season. Yeah. last season They were were out there. And the thing I really appreciated in the beginning of the whole series that that season was that the Raiders really are like, it seems like a family. And I, I don't know if that's always a feeling for all of the teams in the NFL, but in the beginning of that season, what really stuck to me, they said, I think it may have been Mr. Davis himself, or it may have been John Gruden, but they were like, you know, once a Raider, always a Raider. I, like I get all that these, too. Yeah. yeah, all these old Raiders came out for like a function at the beginning of the, of the preseason uh, training camp. So I just that's a really cool vibe. I got a, just a good feeling from from just seeing that. You know, I don't I don't know much about about the Raiders history. I, I know they're you know a great team back in the day, but just seeing that they still kind of care for one another, that was just a really special moment. So I, yeah. I definitely would love to learn more. About I think
0: them. I I get that same vibe. They treat their alumni great. They're yeah. always uh, invited back to the various locations the Raiders have been located at over the years.
1: Yeah. Uh, Los Angeles, Oakland, and now obviously Vegas. And, and someday I hope to get in that stadium, man. It, it looks like a big Roomba vacuum cleaner.
0: Oh yeah. That's a,
1: yeah. I, it looks
0: beautiful. It's so heartbreaking that there's two gigantic new palaces in pro football this season and there's no one in a, in the stands, but, that's 2020 in a nutshell,
1: for sure. Now, if we if we pivot a little bit, so you know, he's we get warm vibes and warm warm fuzzies about Mister Davis, but one guy who I think is such a polarizing figure, exactly. and you said it in in the book, you said Jerry Jones is like a heel character in the WWE, and so for me, growing up as a kid in the Chicagoland area in the 90s, like you said, the Cowboys were a big deal. Like that was our probably our first like. For me, my first real introduction to the game was in viewing the Dallas Cowboys. They had, you know, Emmitt Smith, Michael Irvin, like they had all these legends. And for you to uh, for you to say that and to give him, you know, that heel character title, yeah. I think it probably fits.
0: I I don't look at that as a negative. I look at some. I mean, I mean it with the most respect because oh yeah, heel is a is a marketable per, person in wrestling, and that's people their whole career they want to be the best heel they can be because becoming a great heel. And again, if you're not if you're not versed in uh, wrestling lingo, a heel is simply a villain. Yeah, like someone that is hated by the crowd, but there's, there's wrestlers that strive to be great heels. And it's such an accomplishment because when you become a great heel, you draw interest from the fans. You know, they want to see more of you because whether or not, you know, you understand this being a heel draws in money. It's, it's draws in attention. It's the opposite of love in this business you know, whether it be sports entertainment, whether it be pro football, it's like apathy. You don't want to be ap- apathetic. That you know, that is what will drop ratings. That will drop interest, and then the money will disappear. Um, you want someone to either love you or hate you. And when you hate someone, you tune in to see if they they're going to lose. You know, I love. You know, I'm not a Dallas Cowboys fan. I love watching the Dallas Cowboys, and I like rooting against them when, they, you know, <laughs> when they're when they playing all the time on TV. It's hard to root against a guy like Dak Prescott, though, to be honest. You know, I love I love watching him play. But traditionally, you know, as a kid, like uh, you're saying, who grew up watching the Cowboys dominate so much, you know, we did try to root against them because they brought so much interest to the table. So Jerry Jones does so much for this league in terms of bringing an interest and making he's a marketing genius. He is a business genius. And it's, it's similar to Vince McMahon. He's this heel character that brings people's attention in. And I think a big problem, not to digress too much from the football talk, but I think a big problem with, with the WWE right now is that Vince McMahon is not really that much a part of it that he used to be, you know, he draws ratings, Jerry Jones draws ratings. He should be inserting himself as much as he can into the picture. If you if you want to talk about uh, raising interest and raising money and viewers, and that's what Jerry Jones is all about. Now, the opposite side of that is you got to win games. So, pro football kind of has for owners they have this double bottom line. I talk about in this book. It's you got to win games, and you have to win money. You know, you have to make sure the money's coming in. And you have to make sure your team's winning games. If you don't deliver on both of those bottom lines, there's going to be problems. And problems pop up where fans are very upset on social media. Um, you know, very negative media press is usually the result of when an owner fails to win games. And I think Jerry Jones of recent has been running into an issue with winning games. You know, he's, he, had, he had that double bottom line crushing it in the 90s. He was bringing in a ton of money, tons of money, and he was bringing in for the whole league, not just the Cowboys. And he yeah. was bringing in the Ws and in, in the, the Super Bowl titles. So, you know, it's, it's tough. Owning a sports team is very brutal because of that
1: bottom line. You got to win games and you got to make sure you're winning that revenue too. And it's it's kind of unfortunate because because of their success in the 90s, I would have thought that they could have you know carried that model into the 2000s. Uh, you know, it's been such a long time since they've really been relevant, if we're being honest. And so it, it is kind of sad. Um, I live in the NFC East land now. And, you know, Philly is passionate about their Eagles. So, you know, it's probably a good thing that the Cowboys aren't as successful as they could be or should be. But uh, yeah, like you said, Jerry Jones is such a a really interesting figure. Uh, He's a really important person for this league. And so, you know, it's just really interesting to see that dynamic and and to read your thoughts on him. So I I just thought that was really interesting.
0: NFC East was one of the first chapters, I think, in this book that we cover. And they do have a very interesting group of owners, starting not just with Jerry Jones, but um, Jeff Lurie, who owns the Eagles in your city he is like he comes from a a family a legacy family that once owned like the largest um cinema chain in the country you know his grandfather i believe was into like the drive-in movie theater and he was into theaters and built all these theaters and they were like an innovative family in bringing movie theaters to shopping malls like in the 70s when you saw all that uh, the boom of building shopping malls, and and it, that's interesting because they were smart enough of a business family there that they diversified their interests so much to get away from movie theaters, which of course are suffering so much right now in this COVID environment. And um, they they diversified into so many different fields. And then by I can't remember the exact year, Lurie bought the Eagles. It might have been the early '90s, like in 1994. Uh, you know, by that time. His family's business was so diversified that even though movie theaters were going to be disappearing as far as a huge revenue center, he had diversified that business and his family had diversified their business so much that they were able to afford the Eagles. And the Eagles were a part of that diversification plan. You know, in that portfolio of business interests that they owned, the Eagles were. Uh, a way of diversifying their business interests, and man, has Lurie done an incredible job with the Eagles, uh, bringing them their first Super Bowl title. He's had them in the playoff hunt almost every year. It seemed like for a while, whether it was Donovan McNabb, um, later Mike Vick, even, and you know uh, now Carson Wentz, and, and previously Nick Foles, and. They're struggling this season, but, yeah, he's brought a lot to that franchise. He's super interesting. And then there's a guy also in the NFC East named Steve Tisch, who owns part of the uh, Giants. There's a 50-50 split with the Giants. They're owned by the Tish family and the Mara family. And Tish is also in the movie business. He's um, – he's, I think he has an Academy Award that he – in a movie he – had a hand in producing too. So Lurie's in the music, uh, movie business still, he's more on the producing side now. And then Tish on the giants also involved in the movies. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's again, this book has all that in it. And there, if you like business, you like football, I think you're going to enjoy this how they got their billions book, uh, available on clear slash books or, uh, Amazon, but um, again, another interesting story of a, of a business diversifying um, involves the blockbuster movie chain. And I don't know if you've gotten to the Miami Dolphins chapter yet, but um, I think you're going to like that one too, because the former owner who, who owned the Dolphins before the current owner who owns it now, Stephen Ross owns the Dolphins now. But before him, there was a guy named Wayne Huizenga, a South Florida business legend, and Heinzenga had a huge hand in owning the blockbuster movie chain, and he was smart enough to have the foresight in the mid '90s or so that renting movies wasn't going to be here to stay. Talk about a visionary! This guy, Wayne Heinzenga, he he could see into the future. It was pretty amazing, and he um, he got out of the business. I think he sold he sold Blockbuster to. Don't quote me on this. It's in the book for sure. What it was, but he might have sold like Blockbuster to like Viacom or, or what, what you know some huge media conglomerate like that. And then,
1: of course, Blockbuster went down the tubes. It just it's a shame, uh, man. A lot of my childhood sick. memories were spent in Blockbuster, man. On a Friday night, a, a young cherry picking, I'd go into Blockbuster just to peruse the aisles. You know, yeah. sometimes you get that that terrible feeling of, of picking up a, a movie carton. And there'd be nothing behind it. And you'd be like, damn, I, I can't see this movie till like next week, you know, so.
0: Well, Blockbuster did a great job of having movies in stock because they had a very sophisticated database that I talk a little bit about in the book, but that the genius behind Blockbuster was their sophisticated warehousing and database and they were really ahead of their time, um, yeah you know, and then they obviously what happened to them wasn't ahead of their time, but at a, at, a, at a peak, you know, peak video rental time, Blockbuster had this really cool, elaborate database that you know would stock videos according to the tastes of the location, I think, of, of where that video chain store was located. That's why I remember we had in Lyle, Illinois, Naperville, in where we grew up, uh, we had a blockbuster, and then we had Video Villa down the street um, on Chicago Avenue. I'm if you remember Video Villa. Just, yeah, just, Moment of silence for Video Villa. <laughs> okay. But I think we used to go to Video Villa because it was cheaper. But yeah. the true story was if you wanted to make sure a new release movie that you wanted was there, Video Villa probably what was out of it if you really wanted to see it, like if it just hit the rental yeah. market. Um, like, oh, Titanic, just hit the rental market, you know, you want to go watch that. Oh, shoot, everyone and their mother wants to go watch it, so it's out uh, at Video Villa, the mom-and-pop shop, but then you'd go to Blockbuster, and they'd have it in stock. You'd pay a little bit more, but they always seem to have it in stock, I feel like. That wasn't the case always, but.
1: Yeah, no, definitely a moment of silence for uh, Video Villa and uh, Blockbuster. Blockbuster. Uh, <laughs> one other team that you didn't mention in the NFC East is the Washington football team. Yeah. And shout out to you, Casey, for putting that in the book, that update with that name. I, I don't know if that's what you were originally going to do initially. That was uh, like right before pr- went to press. Yeah.
0: I, I changed all references uh, to Washington football team. Yeah.
1: I, I, I love that, that you did that. And then I, one thing I want to pull out about that, um, and we can talk about that ownership group, because I, I feel like they're controversial, or the owner is, is... Um, you said in the book it's one of the worst game day experiences in the NFL.
0: Oh uh, yeah, I've had the pleasure a few times going to their stadium not too far from where I record this in in Baltimore, yeah, landover, Maryland. Um it's just a tough, tough spot to get to. And it wasn't Dan Snyder's fault. He didn't, he didn't build that stadium there. The previous ownership group did Jack Kent cook who also owned the Los Angeles Lakers and LA Kings for a while. Huge, huge sports owner guy, the late great Jack Kent cook. He, yeah, he built the stadium out there. Um, and it's really, it's off the beltway in, in uh, suburban Maryland. And there's just nothing out there, you know, there's really the parking is it's robust, you know, you're going to get a spot but it's, it's it's expensive, it's a long walk, it's it's just it's there's no character there, the stadium's pretty sterile. Um, it's it the metro, Washington Metro subway goes there but it's 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 not you know, it's like a shuttle ride. After that, it's not—it's not like coming to a Cubs game where you get off the train right there and you're, you walk across the street at the Addison stop and you're right at Wrigley Field. This is a this is a tough, uh, not very great game day experience, I think. Um, there's not
1: there's not a lot of rounding
0: A lot of traffic, you know. Getting yeah. In.
1: Yeah, I, I drove there once, like not even on a game day. I just – I was driving through to visit family in like another state, like North Carolina, and mm-hmm. I was like, I'll just check out the stadium. It took me forever to get to, yeah. and I was like lost at first, and then it's just – I feel like it's in the middle of a field or something, and then it's like the stadium's right there. Yeah, there's like nothing around it. It's a huge stadium.
0: Um, it's it's just it, – there's nothing – there's no real character there. It's in the middle of like a shopping plaza. They used to have the Washington uh, – capitals and bullets at the time would play at that in that area um the the us air arena or something like that capital center used to be called so that was already out there and then they built this football stadium there too but it just doesn't work um you know you can you could contrast that game day experience to Foxborough, Massachusetts, where the Patriots play. Um, it's a it's another out at, off the beaten path place. Um, it's it's hard to get to. It's it's off of Route One in, in suburban or r- actually almost rural Massachusetts. Um, and there's there's not there's but the difference I would say with the game day experience at, at Foxborough, and I've been to a game day experience at both Foxborough and uh, FedEx Field in Landover I think is way better in Foxborough a the team's obviously way better over the years but um also there's trains that go there directly from Boston and Providence they drop you right off in the parking lot you don't have to worry about driving in if you don't want to you could take up you could take a train in from Providence or Boston you know you can it's just way better. And I think the problem with the the FedEx is public transportation. Now, I've never had a game day experience at the Meadowlands, Giants Stadium, Giants Jets. Recently, I've been there as a kid at the previous stadium. I would, I would, I'm not sure what their situation's like. I don't envision it being that great of a game day experience. I think there might be a train or that goes there now but that's another one that's just way far away from um the population base you know the city center it's way out there you're in your area what do you think about the philadelphia game day experience i think that's probably a, a good one the way they have it set up there right off uh, broad street
1: yeah i think an interesting model they have the football stadium there so lincoln financial field and you also have uh Sixers Stadium uh, or Arena, Wells Fargo Arena, and you have all the, the the kind of the experience outside of the Center City area. Like you can, you can the uh, take the train up or the subway up there, yeah. and so it's a, it's a cool experience because you can just get on and, and get there. And then there's also a little uh, Xfinity Live uh, area, so after the game you could go to the bars around there. So it's it's pretty much contained in that area, which I think can be a good model. That's but cool. there is something to be said for like baseball, where you have the Cubs play in in uh, in Wrigley Field. It's like right in the heart of the city. Like it, it kind of depends on, I guess, the sport certainly. But yeah. um, I, I think it's a good model for Philly. I think it works. Yeah. It works. I like think it.
0: College football has obviously the best game day experiences traditionally, um, and I think the the state the stadiums that are built. Pretty much on campus can't be beat, right? Like you're talking about having, like West Virginia. We have our stadium pretty much on campus. It's not. Uh, it's uh, near the medical center. It's not. It's not walkable really from the downtown campus, but it's essentially on campus. Um, the uh, like Temple Temple University. They do not play on on uh, on campus, and th- that that really impacts the game day experience, doesn't it?
1: It, it does a little bit. And there's been ongoing talks. Uh, you hear it maybe every few years that they're going to try to build a stadium uh, within the area of Temple. So probably right in my backyard somewhere. It always comes up. Um, I, I don't know if it, it gets too much support from the residents, but it would be an interesting model to have that experience right in your backyard. Yeah. So maybe someday they'll get a chance to do that. For now, they play all their games at Lincoln Financial Field, their home games.
0: So does Uh, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh plays their games at um, Heinz Field. And I just never liked that arrangement. I never liked seeing the college team play in an NFL stadium. It just never felt
1: right. It doesn't feel like your own. Like, it's not their own thing. It
0: doesn't feel right. I've seen a West Virginia-Maryland game at M&T Bank Stadium here in Baltimore. It's just – it just – something's missing when it, when a college team plays in an NFL stadium.
1: I don't, I don't particularly like it. it that's a good point. It, there's something missing there because it, it takes away from the experience when I'm watching a temple game and I've seen a couple games, uh, temple football games, you know, at Lincoln financial field where you're in the stands as like a fan or a spectator and like the stadium isn't completely f- filled up. So it, it just feels kind of weird to see rows kind of tarped off and like, it just, it kind of takes away from the whole vibe because in your mind, college football, you know, smaller venues, but it's like more filled to capacity. You feel the excitement and the energy. I don't think you get that same type of feeling at Lincoln financial field, watching temple play like Memphis or something. Like it just, I agree. It just, it, it takes away from the experience overall. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then Miami plays at the dolphin stadium down there in Florida too.
1: I'm a huge fan of the on-campus stadiums. I remember it was kind of a sad day to just take us a little off topic, but uh, w- when the orange bowl got uh, torn down, like that was a pretty, pretty sad day. I remember that being like a big deal when it happened. <laughs> um, and so it it is kind of sad that they don't have their own yeah. stadium, you know? So it's just weird.
0: Well, it's a very yeah. historic stadium too. Um, the The Marlins new stadium is on the same site so I don't think they could have kept it because they needed that land for the Marlins' new stadium. But yeah, that's a bummer. Cotton Bowl in Dallas is still there. I like, you know, I, I, I do like trying to preserve the stadium if you can.
1: Yeah, and and so uh, just to uh, reorient everyone, so I'm I'm speaking with my good friend Casey Callanan. We we're discussing how they got their billions. Check it exploring, out. Exploring the business stories of pro football's 32 owners. Casey, I did want to ask you. You know what? Which NFL owner story was the most interesting for you to uncover as you were going through this process?
0: Yeah, I think definitely the Jaguars owner is uh, Shad Khan. I think he's got the most interesting story of all, and it's been documented quite a few times. Like uh, sixty Minutes had a great profile about him, um, and and you can read all about it in the book. He's a uh, an immigrant from Pakistan who fell in love with college football, at the game of football, pro football too, uh, while he was on the campus of uh, the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, Memorial Stadium, Galloping Ghost Red Grange Field. Uh, Fell in love with the game despite how terrible the Illini were when he was there, actually. They were not a good team, particularly in the late 60s. But um, uh, I think they went 0-12 in 69. And uh, he fell in love with the game, and he's a genius engineer. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you can read all about it as I go into it in depth. So uh, I won't do it probably justice too much right now uh, trying to to recap it. But uh, another interesting sidebar about him is he tried to buy the uh, St. Louis Rams in uh, 2010-ish, and he was very close. He had the money, um, but – And I think he would have kept them in St. Louis because Champaign Urbana, central Illinois, not too far from St. Louis. It seemed, and he, he does at least, I think part-time live in that central Illinois area. His company, I think is based there. So I think you, if he would have, that deal would have gone through, you would have still seen the St. Louis Rams in St. Louis. I I have a feeling, but um, it wasn't to be. And the, the, Um, one of the minority owners of the Rams had the clause to uh, counter or match any offer to buy the team, Stan Kroenke. And I, and he did, he did, uh, he did match Con's offer for the Rams and, and contractually he was the first one to, you know, be able to keep the team. So Kroenke keeps the Rams, moves them to LA I don't have a problem with the L.A. Rams being in L.A. I think you know they were there before. It seems like they do have a fan base there. Um, but as as you are a San, former San Diego resident, you you like me have a hard time dealing with uh, the reality that the the Chargers play in L.A. Now that's a tough one.
1: It. It's it's kind of sad for those for those uh, residents that live there. I actually was texting one of my friends uh, just this week, and I asked her, you know, what's your new team now? Because she swore off the Chargers, you know, when they moved. So now, unfortunately, she's a Packers fan. Um, me being a Bears fan, I don't really like that too much. But that's interesting. It, it, yeah, it, it just. Uh, it just feels like a team abandons its fan base when they move like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, that's, that's solid. I, I, I talk about in the book, a lot of Baltimore Colts fans um, became Packers fans in the 80s when the Colts left town. Um, and and uh, to this day, I think they're still Packer fans because of that unique arrangement of how the Packers are ran. They're a community-owned team. So they don't have to deal with that owner, you know, picking up and moving. So that's yeah, that's quite common. I
1: think people do gravitate to the Packers. And, and actually, I'm glad you mentioned the Packers because that was uh, the first thing on my list here to ask you. I, I may have heard it maybe once as a kid or, or back in the day, and maybe forgot it. Yeah. But I, I didn't realize that the Packers are the only group that has shareholders. Like they, they're grandfathered fathered into that arrangement. Yeah. And I think you said there is no more then there, there is no 30% owner of that franchise. Can can you tell me a little bit about that arrangement? Uh,
0: Well, the Packers are, yeah, the Packers are grandfathered into being able to be owned by shareholders. It's not allowed anymore there for a long time. There was a a rule that no owner or there had to be at least one owner that had at least um, a 30% ownership in the team. And they since relaxed that it's all in the book. I, um, you know, I don't remember the specific details off the top of my head on, on on that 30% rule, but it's changed over the years. And the bottom line is the Packers, what they have, which is so cool, that community-owned team, they're owned by shareholders. That can never be replicated again because it's since been outlawed, um, but the, the Packers are going to always be like that. Um, so you can, you know, when they do offer stock to, to buy into the Packers, you can buy the stock. It's not offered every year. It's traditionally i think they've had maybe five or six stock offerings in their history and they've been around since about 1921 um that time period so yeah they have the they have the really the most interesting um uh setup for sure and yeah, it, check out the book read all about it
1: yeah I, I read that was like maybe the first maybe the first chapter or something it was like right in the beginning of the book yeah it's the first one of the
0: first chapters yep
1: and it just if you think about that model, they've actually been pretty successful, um, okay. you know, the entire, you know, their entire run here. I mean, they yeah. they always competitive. The Packers are playing well this year. So Packers are definitely one of those teams, you know, out of Green Bay, Wisconsin, that you always have to keep your eyes on because they're always they're always competitive, it seems like. And they have a very interesting model there. Definitely. Um, wh- which owner do you think needs some help? Like which owner isn't getting it right, you think, in this current environment? Like are there any owners that you were just like kind of disappointed in when you when you read about them or if they need like truly need more help at all or should sell the team?
0: Uh I mean there's some stuff going on with the Washington football team right now that they've been in the news with uh, some stories. So I don't know what the future is gonna be with them. You might see, I don't know if it's gonna necessitate Daniel Snyder selling the team, but we have seen in the past um, owners run into uh, problems with their workplace environment and then they have to sell a team. I think it happened with Carolina and now David Tepper owns that team. It was previously Jerry Richardson. There was some stories that had come out where You know, there was a workplace issues and it got to the point where he had to pretty much sell the team. So I don't know if that's going to be the case in Washington, but there has been some stories that broke in the summer of 2020 in particular that were kind of similar to what was uh, going on in Carolina. So that's something to keep your eye on. But thanks, man, man, for having me on and talking, talking uh, owners. We got to do this again sometime.
1: Yeah, man, I uh, definitely can't wait to dive more into the book. Um, it, yeah. it, like I said, it's a, it's a pretty pretty enjoyable read. It's not too daunting trying to read through it. It's very relaxed reading. And I think if you're an NFL fan or maybe even just a business fan who, who loves business minds, it can be a really interesting book to read and to try to understand how these these owners think and operate and how they are so successful. So Casey, I appreciate you coming on. Could you just tell us your book again and how we can how we can find it?
0: Yeah, how they got their billions, and it's on uh, clearcontender slash books. You find it there, or you find it on Amazon. Hopefully, you enjoy it. Um, it's it's a good read. I hope you check it
1: out. Well, th- yeah, thank you, Casey, for hopping on here. I yeah. can't wait to wait to read your next book because it seems like you've written like ten books already, and like ah, it's gonna be tonight. a while, I think yeah man well uh yeah thank you for hopping on here yeah and thank you all for for listening to the show and watching this on youtube and uh can't wait to speak to you all soon casey i can't wait to see you in the near future my friend thank you good to talk to you as always take it take easy care, man. but a lot of my childhood memories were spent in blockbuster man on a friday night a, a young cherry picking i'd go into blockbuster just to peruse the aisles thank you again for tuning into my cherry picking podcast If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe to my show and drop me a rating on Apple Podcasts. All of my digital content can be found at the website cherrypickinsports.com. If you are looking to interact with me via social media, my Twitter handle is at cherry underscore pickin. That's P-I-C-K-I-N. On my Twitter, you'll also find a link to my blog where I post my weekly college football predictions and analysis. I can also be reached via email at cherrypickingsports@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Please feel free to reach out to me regarding what you like about this podcast or about what content you'd like to hear more of on future episodes. I sincerely thank you for your support, and I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Take care.